Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black, my co-host, Cole Miller, and we have a special guest on today, Twitter's own Witch Carolina, Lee Branscom. Lee, how you doing, my friend? I'm great, man. It's uh, It's been a pleasure interacting with you guys in the Twitterverse, so... Uh, I think we were past due to collaborate and uh, chop it up about some hoops on, on an episode. So uh, grateful, grateful to come on the pod. 100% for, for anyone who, who doesn't follow either us on Twitter at draft deeper or Lee at which Carolina, please, please follow us, get in some of the conversation. Cause we're generally going back and forth, especially uh, last night we were chopping it up a lot about, the Charlotte Hornets playing the Phoenix Suns. We're recording this on Thursday, February 25th. So that was an exciting game last night. And that really plays into a big reason why I wanted to have Lee on the pod this week to talk with Cole and I, because this is the start of the, our rookie series. I, I've absolutely wanted to talk about the, the NBA rookies. I wanted to give their games a little bit of time to digest because I'll just give the disclaimer up front, and I'm sure everybody who's here right now feels the same way. They are rookies. They are not going to be perfect their first few months on the job. They're going to make mistakes. Some of the numbers that we may bring up on this podcast may seem a little skewed, but at the same time, they're finding their way in their new job, kind of like all of us that had to find our ways in, in new jobs and, and careers as well. I can talk about this very specifically. I, I don't get to do this quite yet for a full-time job, hopefully one day that will definitely happen for, for this platform or whatever lies ahead for me in the basketball realm. But I've been transitioning between multiple different roles in my company over the last few months. And I can tell you, so, some days it's a little daunting when you're first starting out, right? You're trying to, to get your feet wet, feel your way through the waters. And that's what a lot of these NBA rookies have to go through on a daily basis, both everything going on on the court as well as off the court. So with that being said, I want to jump right in with the most magnetic personality that we had coming into the 2020 NBA draft, the most surefire name to search for when you're looking at Google, YouTube highlights, it's LaMelo Ball, right? He, he's, he's the big moneymaker. He was the big name, biggest name coming into the draft, 6'6", point guard, combo guard, Point forward, he has the size to be a point forward, however you want to look at it. He's listed at 6'6". Six, six. I think he's probably closer to 6'7". There are reports that he's even grown. I think his father came out, he, he feels like he's grown all the way to 6'8". So whichever size you want to classify him in, either way, he's a big playmaker, right? Those jumbo playmakers have, have been in style for quite a while now in the NBA, and they're not going away anytime soon. Um, so before I give some of my thoughts and or initial thoughts about how his rookie season's going with the Charlotte Hornets. Lee, I just, I just want to ask you um, a, as a huge Charlotte Hornets guy, who would have you wanted to take with like, let's say the Hornets had the first overall pick in the 2020 draft. I know LaMelo ball in many ways, like fell to you guys. I certainly felt that way. Like I mocked him. I think he should have went number one overall to the Minnesota Timberwolves. I thought he probably would have been the best overall fit. And in a lot of ways, you guys got lucky. But um, who would have you taken first overall? Was it LaMelo, or are you definitely happy with the result now that it's happened? I'm definitely happy with the result. Um, I had LaMelo Ball fourth uh, on the final Witch Carolina board. 
Um, I had Anthony Edwards first. Um, I agree with you in hindsight that Minnesota uh, likely, probably in some ways, wishes, wishes they would have taken LaMelo, but you contextualized the intro really well. Like these are rookies. Some of these kids are literally teenagers and we're only 30 games in. So although it's tough to draw any sort of uh, finite conclusions, I think we are at least far enough into the season to start uh, pontificating on, on, you know, where we think these rookies development is trending. Um, so to answer your question, I did have Anthony Edwards number one on my board Obviously, he has not been an efficient scorer in the NBA yet, although he is scoring from a volume perspective and on certain nights really flashes all the reasons why he was number one on my board. I think you'd have to be crazy to say that LaMelo Ball hasn't impacted winning more right away because he's such an integral piece of this Charlotte Hornets roster that is in the thick of the Eastern Conference playoff race right now. Um so I guess just kind of to wrap it up before you share some of your thoughts. Yeah, I had Anthony Edwards first. I had Tyrese Halliburton second, who was a guy that I was just absolutely in love with throughout the entire draft uh, evaluation process. I had Patrick Williams third, and I had LaMelo Ball fourth. So uh, if it was me in that situation, I think LaMelo Ball was probably a better roster, foot, roster fit than Patrick Williams was for the Charlotte Hornets because of the existence of miles bridges and pj washington already on that roster so you know if i was in mitch's seat on draft night very likely i would have taken Lamelo ball even though i did have him fourth on my board cole I, i'd be ignorant to not ask you up front as well what were kind of your thoughts on Lamelo ball as we were coming into the draft i know that i certainly pontificated um uh, about his strengths and weaknesses on this podcast but you weren't the co-host with me at at the launch and when i was going through like a one through five on the draft deeper big board back in the the good old 2020 big board days uh so where were you at on ball coming into that draft yeah so i mean we had probably shared a couple of texts at that time at least um i was firmly with Lamelo at number one i just thought all the uh negative connotations that came with this game were kind of overstated I thought he did want to play defense. Like, I just thought everything was overstated in a way. This kid was every 100% about basketball. Total gamer um, in the sense that he's just, like, he's just an old-school, like, baller. He just has that in him. He's a shot maker. Um, some of the shots that he's made in some of these games, like, you just, you just got to tip your hat and say, wow, because, I mean, there's going to be more of that coming, and he's, a, he's really a special talent. So I, I kind of felt like that was, that was going to be the case. I thought he loved basketball. Uh, more than people were letting on and I thought that you know he was going to make it happen just how he thought he was going to make it happen so he was number one for me um, I, I know I've said on our podcast that I haven't been the biggest fan on Edwards um, though I will say some of the like you said Lee there have been nights where he's put it all together for spurts and it's been really really impressive so if he can continue to do that and do it more consistently then I'll be wrong about Edwards in the long haul and that's great I mean I don't want these kids to fail by any stretch so um, I was definitely LaMelo Edwards and then Wiseman. Um, you know, we, I'm starting to get concerned about Wiseman, whether he stays on the court enough if he puts all the uh, talent he has together. Um, but not quite as high on Tyrese. Um, and that was a guy I've been wrong about. But the conversation is about LaMelo, and he's, he's a super special talent. So, Nate, why don't you share your thoughts about what you felt about LaMelo going into the uh, 2020 draft? 
Sure. So going into the draft, I was actually right with Lee. I had him number four on the 2020 draft deeper big board. Uh, I'm pretty famous on Twitter at at this point, or at least I should be for actually having a Carolina Tar Heel number one overall in in Cole Anthony. Um, I had Cole Anthony and then I had James Wiseman, Denny Avdia, and then I had LaMelo Ball. And the reason why I had LaMelo at number four was not because I couldn't see him or, or see a path for him being the best overall player in the draft class, but with some of the things that, that I saw in my evaluations, I mirrored his game very close to his brother Lonzo. And, and in certain ways, that has played out in the beginning stretch of his NBA career in, in, in the sense where he's looked at being a playmaker first and a guy who gets others involved and knows where to knows where to get the ball at certain times more than just being this pure bucket getter. Like you're looking at him for the sole responsibility of putting the ball in the basket, right? That That's not how you view LaMelo Ball, and that's not how you view Lonzo either. Um, and, and the both of them are very content at times with camping outside the three-point line, kind of evaluating where the, def- where the defense is at, evaluating and taking in the context in turn where the players around him are at, and then kind of getting the ball to where it needs to be or if there's a shot to be had. They're both perfectly content with firing away from behind the three-point line, right? So where LaMelo's game differed and where he showed promise was everything he could do scoring inside the arc. And I think that's taken shape a tad this season, at least by the eye test. If you look at some of the numbers, some of the metrics wouldn't exactly bear that out. Shooting thirty, uh, like 33% from 3 to 10 feet away from the basket, like 36% from 10 to 16 feet. So... Those numbers wouldn't say he's been an efficient scorer inside the arc and some of those certain like pull-up runner areas. But at the same time, if you go back and watch the film, he's proven he can hit those shots, right? And that's going to become more a part of his game as he gets more comfortable finding a balance between when to score and when to pass. And I think he's done a pretty good job of that so far. Lee, how have you felt about his responsibilities as a point guard between balancing when he needs to distribute versus when he needs to score? Yeah, so I've kind of explained it like this, or, or I've thought about it like this. LaMelo Ball's presence on this specific Charlotte Hornets roster has solved a lot of problems. Um, most notably, LaMelo Ball immediately, as a rookie, has solved the issue that plagued the Hornets last year, which was zero playmaking off the bench. Uh, If you look at the on-off numbers last season for the Charlotte Hornets, when Devontae Graham had to rest, the offense just cratered. I mean, to a point where I I think the four of us and and another random guy (laughs) off the street probably could have scored as many points per 100 possessions with Devontae Graham off the floor. So he saw he solved the issue of the second unit playmaking. Obviously, he's been starting more recently because of Devontae Graham's injury and, and may continue to start. And maybe that's something we talk about a little bit later. The second issue he solved was kind of allowing some of our ancillary talents to, to, to exist as their best self. And what I mean by that specifically is a guy like Miles Bridges who is essentially an elite above-the-rim athlete and uh, a slightly above-average stationary catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. 
you know, he's he's not an elite three-point shooter, but he is slightly above average. I think this year, after last night, he, he's right around 37, 38% from three. So LaMelo Ball allows Miles Bridges to space the floor. Obviously, his instinctual passing ability in the pick and roll and in transition highlights what Miles Bridges is really good at, which is jumping very high in the air and dunking the ball through the rim. He, he also finds Miles Bridges when he penetrates. Um, so, so he does that for, for Bridges. He, he, he highlights what Bridges does best. He also does this for Terry Rozier. Terry Rozier, uh, as most, as everyone knows, has become uh, kind of one of the probably top 10 catch and shoot three-point shooters in the entire NBA and in the entire world, really. Terry Rozier was shouldered with uh, an irresponsible amount of playmaking responsibilities last season due to what I just talked about. Just, just no second unit playmaking. Terry Rozier had to carry the load when Devontae Graham was out of the game. LaMelo Ball has solved that issue as well. Terry Rozier can completely exist as an off-ball shot hunter, which makes him incredibly more efficient than he was last year, which was a career shooting year for him, his first year in Charlotte. He is outpacing that again this season and is having a historic shooting season uh, for his career total. So I think when I think about LaMelo, he's a 19-year-old that has shown just an unbelievable amount of two-way basketball instincts. But but I think what it really boils down to is the the, the problems and the issues that he's solved and, and, and fixing some of the flaws that already existed on this Charlotte Hornets roster. There are still flaws to, to solve, don't get me wrong, and there are still holes in LaMelo's game that he will have to improve on as he matures. But that's kind of the first thing that really comes to mind as I'm um, just kind of consuming LaMelo in, in his rookie year. Absolutely. Um, probably, well, well, actually, just to, to, a quick note on that nugget, yeah, Terry Rogier's corner three-point shooting is absurd. Like, I, I never envisioned him becoming that lethal of a jump shooter, but that was clearly a big flaw in his game. Some of those uh, moments in Boston where he'd have some of these huge clutch shots, but then you'd look at him to do it on a more consistent and rhythm basis, and he just wouldn't be able to, to get anywhere close to nailing like 35 36% of his threes at some point. So the fact that he knew that that was something that he had to work on and he went out and he actually did it, well, now that's a weapon for the Hornets that makes everyone else around him so much more open to playing their games, kind of like you were talking about with LaMelo. That opens things up for everyone else. And then when you throw in LaMelo's playmaking, the ability to have Rozier as more of like an off-guard, a secondary creator, so that he could save a lot of his energy for A, hitting those shots, and B, oftentimes taking on the other team's best creator on the defensive end, you know, that, that, that speaks volumes to, to the level of stability that balls brought to the court. Now, probably the mo the, the biggest thing that jumps out to me, as far as looking at some of the stats and then matching that up with the film is the defense. So he's in the 67th percentile, according to synergy in total defense, which is remarkable given where he could have potentially started the year at, uh, that, that was a big thing that led to him not playing as many minutes was James Borrego wanting him to play more consistent defense and show effort on that end to make sure that, yeah, 
you're going to come in, you're going to create a lot of highlight plays. You're going to explode our presence on social media, but we still have to go out there and win basketball games. And you can't be a zero or near a zero on the defensive end. If you want to have all these offensive responsibilities to be able to showcase what you can do and be able to, to live on in, in that sense. Right. So that to me surprised me that he's made such aggressive strides, but at the same time, I became a Lamelo Ball defensive apologist when I was defending that area for him back before the 2020 NBA draft because I thought that while he may not be the, the, the quickest judgment guy on defense, he might have some lapses where he's looking away or not seeing where the ball's going or letting some guy cut behind him. At the same time, he's 6'6 through 6'8, wherever you want to classify him as. He's a big dude. Like, for example, Tobias Harris for the Sixers, I wouldn't call him this fantastic defender. He's probably around average, but at the same time, he's this big-bodied dude, and while LaMelo's not as, obviously not as thick as Tobias Harris, he's still probably close to him in height. He's a big dude with a long wingspan that at some point you can rely on him to be able to bother shots and or change pass trajectories, and like he can play passing lanes. Probably the best play I saw last night from him in that Suns game was when he intercepted a pass that was intended for Chris Paul was kind of falling or close to falling out of bounds, but kept his balance and then fired the pass right in transition for an easy basket. Like that to me sums up everything that the LaMelo ball can, can bring to the table minus some of the shooting aspects. We can talk about his game more in depth, but uh, what is, what has probably been the best thing that you've seen LaMelo improve upon to this point in the season Lee yeah no you you laid that out really intelligently I mean his defense although it still has a long way to go I mean you watched the game last night he definitely got back cut a few times he he has lapses in rotation responsibilities and even on the ball sometimes can be a little bit of a liability depending on the matchup um but to your point, his defensive instincts uh, and his ability to anticipate not only where the ball is going, but where all the other players on the floor are located and where he needs to get his long wingspan in the way of those passing windows. So I think one thing that's been really impressive about him, when he slides his feet on defense on the ball, he keeps his hands highs and he gets all kinds of deflections. Um, and that bears out in the numbers, right? I mean, he leads the Hornets with 1.6 steals per game. He also leads the Hornets with 2.8% uh, steal percentage. So for a 19-year-old rookie uh, that's playing less than 30 minutes a game, to lead your team in, in steals and steal percentage, I think is pretty impressive. Um, obviously, like you said, sometimes size, you know, forgives mistakes, right? Terry Rozier cannot make the same rotational mistakes that LaMelo Ball can because LaMelo Ball with his 6-7 frame and his 6-9 wingspan or whatever it is can can forgive some of those mistakes. Now that can be a crutch at times and he doesn't need to lean on that too much and to your point James Borrego has benched him late in games earlier in the season it hasn't been much of an issue over the past month uh, but but that's all part of the learning process that's all part of the developmental curve for LaMelo Ball and I'm glad frankly that Borrego is holding him accountable, it, it's a fine line. You, you, you want him to play through mistakes, but you also want him to understand that there's a level of expectation. And I think 
James Borrego thus far has done a pretty good job negotiating that fine line. Um, I think the other surprising thing, it's not the, the, the facilitation is not a surprise, right? Like everyone knew that LaMelo Ball was entering the NBA as a unique playmaker. That was evident. I think what has been impressive is the, um, the, the, the quality in which he has taken care of the ball when, while, while still being shouldered with a ton of playmaking responsibility. So the 6.1 assists probably doesn't surprise anybody, but 2.8 turnovers compared to 6.1 assist, again, for, for a teenager point guard that's playing heavy minutes for a team that's in a playoff race, I think that is incredibly encouraging. So liked all the points you made about his defense, although there are still some holes there. I, I think the ball security has been a nice, pleasant surprise because, you know, you might look at that 2.8 turnovers and think, oh, that's a lot. But when you compare it with his usage, which is third on the team, only behind uh, Gordon Hayward, um, and, and you compare it with all the, the responsibility he has as a playmaker, I think it's actually a pretty impressive uh, ratio. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the ball security, the turnovers, not necessarily just to the assist, but he's also taking close to 13 shots a game as well. Right. So the we, people forget that, too, when they look at just assist to turnover ratio. You can look at that metric. That's fine. But you also have to factor in how many other ways they're contributing within the offense. And that plays a part to how much responsibility they ultimately have, how many times they have the ball in their hands and what they're doing with it. So. The fact that he's shooting about 44% overall from the field, which is honestly, that's fine. As a guard, yeah. that, that, that's fine. That's not a bad metric. 35% from three overall. Um, he's not getting to the, to the free throw line maybe quite as much as you and I would probably like him to, only 2.4 free throw attempts per game, considering he's hitting them at an 81% clip. So that's clearly an efficient way for him to manufacture points, a much more efficient way than his brother Lonzo. But... I guess the other thing, the other compliment that I'll give LaMelo and something I was very hesitant to just pass by, pass over and say, hey, he's going to be okay doing that at the next level is he's been fearless and he's been aggressive driving into the lane, being able to pass out when he has a guy open in the corner, whatever the case may be. But the fact that he's even taking the steps to consistently penetrate the paint and then kind of evaluating the situation, do whatever he needs to from there. That's something that I that I dogged on him in the pre-draft process because there would be games that he was playing overseas in the NBL where he, he wouldn't do that, and he looked like his brother Lonzo at times. And to me, that's still an issue with, with Lonzo is the fact that there are certain points where, yeah, he's gotten a little better at being a little more aggressive hunting even for like a mid-range shot or getting into the lane off like a pick and roll, but – it's not like Lonzo's this unathletic guy, yet he just won't get into the paint for whatever reason. And even going back to his UCLA days, that UCLA team was much more effective on offense when he was able to penetrate, get inside, and then make something happen because of the amount uh, of attention that he drew from the defense. And then given his impressive and, and incredible core vision, the same core vision that LaMelo has, then he's able to kick the ball out to an open shooter because he's making the defense collapse in because he's that much of an athletic threat and, and not a bad finisher at the basket when he gets there. Now, that's been something that's been called into question about LaMelo is, is a little bit like, it's not that he doesn't have a finishing package, but it's just not the most efficient 
in terms of numbers when he gets to the basket. But Ball's willingness to be able to go in, play against whoever he needs to inside the arc, and then be a playmaker from there versus just camping outside and bombing away threes or, or whatever the case may be there, giving the ball up when he could potentially do something with it because he is a more athletic presence that I think people give him credit for. He's not doesn't have elite quickness, but at the same time, he's not slow, and he also has longer strides being the size that he is going up against some of those other guard matchups who ultimately – get him on defense so uh cole what what to you what what have you seen from the mellow ball that certainly surprised you in his rookie season and what have you seen that 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 he's improved on that's impressed you yeah i would just say like the soundness overall of his defense on a night-to-night basis is probably impressive but also i i find the turnover uh stat to be very impressive as well um and just to expound off that a little bit the amount of high-level plays he makes so often in the game, uh, and then to have that such a low turnover rate, that's where it really becomes impressive, and he makes some of those high-level plays look so easy. Um, so, and then, I, I, Lee, maybe you can confirm this, I think, you know, based off those those high-level plays, it's almost like his IQ, and Gordon Hayward helps us a little bit too, his IQ has rubbed off, rubbed off on his teammates in a big way. Like, they're starting to make plays he would make in their position. Um, I was watching the game as well last night, and I can remember him, you know, there was a screen coming and he told it to sit and, you know, he kicked the pass instead of the, instead of the double coming to him. And then that guy turned to the basket and then rifled a bounce pass to a cutter. And it was just like, wow, okay. Like they're playing like LaMelo at every position now. And it's just like, that impresses me that a 19 year old has come in and they, he's had the ability to have, you know, an impact and rub off on his teammates who have been here for a while. And he's got them playing, you know, in a fashion that he's playing with, with playmaking. So from that standpoint, yeah. I've been really impressed. And, and yeah, Lee, if you could confirm if you've seen some of that as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, and, and, and to LaMelo's credit, you know, even early in the season when he was having some really impactful games off the bench, and, and of course, you know, you're going to get the questions from the media about whether he should be starting or not. You know, he, and part of this is probably because he's had to deal with the media since he was, you know, a 16-year-old or, or whatever it was. But, you know, he's always saying the right things. He's always carrying, carrying himself, uh, frankly, in a very mature manner. So that's been impressive. I think to your point, it's true. I mean, anytime you have a unique uh, facilitator, I think that that rubs off on your teammates. But, but the Hornets, you know, even last year under James Borrego, uh, have had a really positive assist percentage. They move yep. the ball on offense. Their shot profile – uh, is is efficient. They take a lot of threes and they take a lot of shots at the rim. The ball pops around. It doesn't stay with one guy too much. And and that's even been amplified this year because one of Lamelo Ball and two because they haven't had to just uh, kind of grind away with uh, pick and roll after pick and roll for Devonte Graham. They've been able to be a lot more diverse in kind of their offensive set making and action. And they also get out in transition uh, a hell of a lot more than they did last year. One, because the defense is a little bit improved. And two, because LaMelo Ball just shows you that kind of mind-blowing ability to throw the ball up the floor into tight windows and create opportunities for his teammates. So, yeah, to your point, I think LaMelo Ball's ability to share the basketball is contagious. And two, 
James Borrego has, even prior to LaMelo being on the roster, implemented an offense that, um, uh, you know, moves the ball without it being stuck on one side too often. Yeah. yeah so, oh, go ahead, Cole. No, I was just going to say, so like LaMelo is force multiplying what, you know, the, the yes. foundation that Brago put in place. He's, he's definitely, uh, I think, one of the better kept secrets in the NBA right now. I definitely was catching wind of some of Charlotte's positive headway last year with when Devontae Graham started to make, you know, a name for himself. Um, you know, I thought Borrego was a big part of that as well. So good to hear. Yeah, James yeah. Borrego is one hell of a coach, man. Like, like I, I, I tried to sing his praises as often as I could kind of in, in the same timeline that, that Cole's talking about last year when you saw development, so much development from some of these young guys. And that's a big reason why I fully supported the Gordon Hayward signing. I tweeted about this a few times, shared my thoughts in a few Facebook groups. But at, at this point in, the, in Charlotte Hornets' development, you have it's not like you're going into this with just like one or two prospects where you don't want to ruin your chances potentially at having a, another shot at a top lottery pick. They have multiple guys, right? Like we're talking about now you have LaMelo. You already had Devontae Graham. It's not like Terry Rozier's ancient by any means. He's more of a vet now, but he's not ancient. You have PJ Washington, Miles Bridges, as we talked about. Uh, Jalen McDaniels is an interesting piece that they have off the bench. So you get you got to figure out what you have in some of these young guys, and you also have to teach them how to play the game of basketball the right way. And one way to do that is to not just have some vets in place who are stars in their roles, like a Cody Zeller, for example, but have a guy who knows how to play the game at a very high level, who's been an all-star and been in the spotlight and Gordon Hayward to help show these guys, hey, this is how we need to come into work every day. This is how hard we need to work. And this is what we need to do in order to win basketball games at a high level. And I think that has paid off in dividends, not just for the young guys, but it's also given Gordon Hayward a chance to in turn lean on them at times and bring out the best of his game. And he's had an, an all-star level campaign up to this point in the season. Certainly a nice resurgence from, from Gordon Hayward. Yeah. Gordon's just been <laughs> fantastic. I mean, Obviously, what he offers is kind of a calming influence on the offense. It's, it seems that when the Hornets are in a tough spot, Gordon is kind of just able to, 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 to take the basketball, uh, slow things down a little bit, get us in some type of uh, efficient action, or just maybe create himself. He, he's been unbelievable finishing at the rim. He's obviously shooting the ball well, and he gives us that like jumbo two-way wing uh, that we have lacked for the better half of a decade. So it's not that Gordon Hayward is some lockdown defender, but he is, you know, a six, seven switchy wing that you can throw on kind of a large variable of position, you know, from the defensive end. So, and, and the last point I was going to make to, to, to a point you made earlier was I've been pleasantly surprised with the LaMelo Ball's ability to just abuse switches, uh, you know, when he gets switched out onto a big or even against some of these more like kind of plotting wings, like, like a Jay Crowder last night. I mean, there were two examples late in the fourth quarter where uh, Aiton got switched onto LaMelo ball late in the shot clock and Jay Crowder got switched onto LaMelo ball late in the shot clock. And he just kind of dances with the ball and blows by them. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, he's not slow, but he's not ultra quick. I agree with that. 
but I've really been encouraged by kind of his shiftiness and, and deceptiveness where sometimes he goes by some of these switches and even sometimes goes by, you know, positional uh, matchups of his own um, ilk that they look like they're standing in sand. And that is something that makes me incredibly optimistic about his ability to create offense, not only within the system, but also in isolation, latent shot clocks and latent games. So, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm just continually singing his praises. I'm fully aware that there are, are, are some big flaws and some big areas of improvement that he needs to make, but I just don't know how you could watch his first uh, 31 games, 11 starts so far, and not think that at least in the short term, with the information we have right now, that Charlotte's direction of their franchise hasn't been altered for the next decade, um, barring something, you know, obviously catastrophic injury wise that, that we never want to see to any player. Um, so <laughs> I guess I'll just wrap up with saying it's, it's fun that Charlotte is actually interesting and kind of a sneaky top league pass team, I think, to watch right now. That is something we have not experienced in quite some time, and a large part of it is due uh, to the guy we're talking about right now. Well, I, I wouldn't say they're a sneaky league pass watch by by any stretch of the imagination because Rachel Nichols hops on the jump every day and talks about how the Charlotte Hornets have been dubbed their league pass team of the year. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're getting a lot more eyes on him for sure. I, Lee, I'm glad you made that point about his ability to abuse mismatches especially when he gets them at the top of the court because he ranks in the 92nd percentile overall on top of the court isolation and that was probably my my favorite stat that I was able to pick out as far as his offensive metrics are concerned and clearly uh the the Charlotte Hornets have figured out that that's one way to to get him involved in the offense and get him into doing something that he's very comfortable at because when he's given the ball however however he gets it back at the top of the key and then he he's able to kind of go to work on somebody do a few dribble moves and either step into a three or create something off the bounce and turn for something else that's that's where he's the most comfortable at he's used to having the ball in his hands he's used to being the the guy who runs the show who has the 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 ball for for a late late shot clock look like that that's what he's used to doing and I, I'm glad to see that the Hornets and Borrego they've recognized that and they get the ball in his hands to take advantage of those opportunities more and more. I guess the last point I'll make about Lamelo is we we were talking about how he he is this big star he's been famous for the majority of his life. One thing to say about that is if you can make it through those those childhood star years and you're able to grow up and mature and come out on the other side all right, it really bodes well for your future, particularly where you look at where LaMelo Ball is now. A lot of the things you see him do on the court, he honestly just feels like he's doing them within the flow of a game, like coming up maybe maybe in transition, taking like two to three three-point looks in a row and yeah there's there's points where he'll make them and he'll look like he's this absolute star on the court like this little hot dog or just running up the court like Steph Curry and shooting all these threes but that that's just how he wants to play that that he's finding those shots within the flow of the offense and when he does things like that you don't feel like he's taking away from the team's success or when he's making like one of those flashy around the back dishes 
um, off a pick and roll for for somebody cutting in the lane. Like you, you don't feel like he's taking anything away from anybody else. And maybe that comes from the comfort of knowing that he's already this big established star. He doesn't need to do anything on the court necessarily to attract more views and more attention his way. He can just go out there and just play how he sees fit. Absolutely. Completely agree. Yep. So that that's kind of where I want to leave the LaMelo ball conversation before we move into a few of these other rookies, just one call out Lee, since I know that you're a Charlotte guy, Nick Richards has been destroying G league competition. And when I read off some of these numbers for our listeners who may or may not have gotten a chance to, to hear about him or see him in some of the G league so far, 20 points per game, almost 13 rebounds a game shooting 55% from the floor almost 67% from three and 82% from the line, 5.4 steals and blocks combined per game. A lot of that's coming from the 4.7 blocks and just a little over two turnovers in 30 minutes a game. I don't care what level of basketball you're playing at. Those numbers are insane. Now, Lee, one of the, one of the bigger conversations that have been had about the Charlotte Hornets was that at some point they're probably going to need to draft a big man to kind of fill in the gap find the, the the younger Cody Zeller replacement. But have they found that guy in, in Nick Richards? Can can he be that guy? And did you see any of this coming back when you were evaluating him for, for the draft last year? Yeah, so so Nick Richards uh, was 24th on my board. I had a first-round grade on him. I, you know, he was a player that I thought that the Charlotte Hornets should target, and, and obviously they did did they, they did target they, they even traded for an extra second round pick with with the new orleans pelicans to get him so i think that shows you uh mitch kupchak's kind of level of conviction you know he 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 sent away some future uh draft equity to acquire a second uh, a second second round pick obviously like you said small sample size g league but i think he's showing some of those uh qualities that I saw in him in the draft process. And, and one of those qualities was like the dirty secret on Nick Richards was that he was developing as a jump shooter in his, in his uh, junior year at Kentucky. Uh, you know, he was a 75% free throw shooter on good volume. He was a 43% mid range jump shooter on good volume. He didn't attempt a single three in his Kentucky career, but you know, if you if you paid attention to his mechanics and the way he picked and popped in the mid range for Kentucky and spaced the floor with kind of all of those uh, ball dominant creators they had on that team last year, you you could you could um, theorize a path for him to be shooting corner threes in the NBA at like a mid thirty you know mid thirties percentage in a couple years and. You know, I think that's maybe even playing out a little quicker than we thought, albeit at a lower level of competition and not in the big show yet. Um, the Hornets, they still have some issues with rim protection, although P.J. Washington and Miles Bridges have both improved as rim protectors, which has helped. Um, you know, is Nick Richards the, the center of the future with, with the rest of this young core? I, I'm not ready to, to necessarily go there yet. But I was incredibly bullish on him in the draft process, and the early returns are good. Obviously, they also drafted Vernon, Vernon Carey Jr. Uh, from Duke, who is a, a, di a much different 
uh, center than Nick Richards is more of a more of a brute kind of a around the basket finisher a little bit of a plotter not much of a, a floor spacer uh, so I think the, the Hornets just need to kind of continue to throw darts at the dartboard in regards to young uh, big talent and you know if it was me Nick Richards would certainly be my leading candidate uh, for, for a, 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 a traditional post that will actually be able to contribute at the NBA level for the Hornets. I mean, he makes the most sense with the continuity and, and kind of what you have with the rest of the Hornets roster at this point, especially to pair with a playmaker like LaMelo Ball. You want an elite pick-and-roll finisher, and Nick yep. Richards being a true seven feet, as athletic as he is, that that's, that's, an, that's an interesting option. And then you add in the wrinkle that you were talking about, his improved jump shooting, if he becomes a pick-and-pop threat. You're talking about a potentially lethal combination. Even when you play Richards and P.J. Washington on the court at the same time, now you have two potentially lethal pick-and-pop threats, and that just opens up the court certainly a lot more for everyone else as well. So I, I like the prospect of Nick Richards playing a bigger part in the Hornets' future. I, I think that's definitely an outcome that's going to happen. You mentioned Vernon Carey Jr. I was I was not high on, on Carey Jr., to be honest, coming into the, the, the draft process last year. But he's had some good games in the G League as well, and he can certainly find himself in a role on, on the Hornets in, in the years coming as well. But I think Richards just has a chance to, to really explode onto the scene, given that he already has in the G League. And that G League competition is by no means poor, right? Like we, We've right. been using it as a positive indicator for some of the G League prospects that we've been talking about on this podcast here, specifically uh, guys like Jalen Green, Jonathan Kuminga, Isaiah Todd, Dacian Nix, like they, they've all gotten so much out of this experience a lot because of the competition they're playing against night to night and the opportunity they have to improve in turn from going up against grown men night to night has really helped them. And it's only helping Nick Richards continue to develop and figure out where he's at right now, what he needs to do to firmly fit in in the NBA uh, under a more consistent role, let's say 20 to 25 minutes per game versus just getting a chance at, at, at scratching the pine at like eight to 10 minutes per game. Right. So that, that to me has been an incredibly awesome sign to see Cole. You have any other thoughts on Nick Richards before we move on? No, I mean, just getting to catch him in the ignite game and some highlights. He looks really good with pick and roll, like you guys said. Like he's he's definitely going to get that easy in the NBA. He does a lot of the little things well that Cody Zeller does well, I think too. Um, I think people underrate or yeah, they they underrate Cody Zeller's effectiveness uh, for Charlotte the last year and a half or so. When he goes out, the team definitely suffers because that dude sets some pretty gnarly screens. He he might be one of the best screen setters in the NBA, I think. Um, and I think Nick Richards, based off what I've seen so far, is is doing some of that in the G League too. So. The fact that he's going to be able to do that and is now more athletic than Cody Zeller and has a better jump shot. I mean, he was he was picking and popping and catching and shooting from the wing on a couple of clips I saw. So, yeah, it's it's the arrow is definitely pointing up and could be very exciting to see him start to fit in with Lamelo and these other guys. Another Kentucky guy. We're going to move on. This week we're kind of covering some of our favorite and more intriguing prospects. We'll we'll hit on a lot of the bigger guys in future episodes on the series here in the coming weeks. But another guy that's caught everyone's eye is Emmanuel Quickly. Now, at, at this point, we, we just talked about Nick Richards. We're, we're mentioning Quickly. Cal, WTF are you doing with some of these young guys, man? Like, the, it, 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 we're at a point now where every single guy that comes out of Kentucky is not just showcasing, like, one skill that nobody knew about that can earn them minutes in an NBA game, but we're talking about multiple 
different skill sets that these guys are starting to show off. Like when, when quickly was at Kentucky, I think this is part of why not a lot of people were incredibly high on him. I, I had him as like a value second round target, like somebody the team should definitely be paying more attention to because of how lethal he was as an outside shooter, particularly in his last year at Kentucky. But he's not even manufacturing the majority of his offense for the New York Knicks from just pure catch and shoot threes. The majority of everything that he's doing is is off the dribble. And it's funny that his last name is quickly because that's exactly what he's been. He's been cat quick around the court at times, getting to his spots, getting the spots inside the arc where I didn't even know that he could get to as reliable as he has. And then you want to talk about a floater game. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I, I may be on an island. I don't know where I'm at on this point, but I think he's got the best floater in the NBA, period given where he can hit that shot from. Like we're talking about a guy who takes floaters or, or little push shots from like the free throw line, not even like closer to the basket. And he makes them at a very, very considerable clip. So uh, Lee, what are some of the things you've noticed about quickly early on here? Why has he been one of your more intriguing guys to be able to watch this year in the NBA? Yeah, well, look, I'll preface this by saying uh, there, there are pro- plenty of regrets that I have uh, about my, you know, 2020 board. I, I get things wrong all the time, and I, I will continue to get things wrong because uh, prospect evaluation is is one of the more subjective and harder things uh, to do. But Emmanuel quickly was a guy that I beat the drum on for months prior to the draft. He was 19th on my board. He went 25th. Um I thought that some of the qualities that have surprised people uh, were honestly fairly evident at times. And look, it was difficult to a degree because Ashton Hagens and Tyrese Maxey were so ball dominant on that Kentucky team. But specifically in the second half of the Florida game and, and the second half of the LSU game, uh, Hagens didn't play in the Florida game. So that, that gave you a really good full game sample size on Emmanuel Quickly's ability to create uh, as an on the ball player. And he did that really well. He was also uh, a 92% free throw shooter on large volume his sophomore year at Kentucky and drew a very large uh, foul rate. So, and then he's doing that now to your point, like not everything is relocation jump shots or, you know, stand in the corner and space the floor. Uh, it's, it's play out of the pick and roll, uh, dri- shooting off the dribble. Like these are all things that he was a lead at, at Kentucky in his sophomore year. He also kind of sneakily became one of the premier wing defenders in the SEC. He uh, regularly took on the most difficult opposing guard wing for that Kentucky team. And because of his wingspan, and like you said, his lateral shiftiness, that was something he was incredibly competent at. And, uh, you know, from a defensive standpoint, you know, as a rookie, he's not going to be stellar by any means, but he is more than serviceable. And I think that will only continue to improve. So, you know, quickly, maybe – in my opinion, was probably the best movement jump shooter in this class. You know, some people may say Desmond Bain. I think that's fair, but just, you know, as a matter of taste, quickly was my guy. And, you know, some of this uh, now, granted, the floater is something that has has certainly surprised me. I mean, he showed it at times, but the the consistency that, that he is showing with that floater is 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 amazing. 
And, uh, but, but just from, you know, his, his kind of general profile, elite jump shooter, solid two-way defender and second side creator, pick and roll initiator. I just, I just thought he was unbelievably undervalued um, on that Kentucky team, probably partly due to the fact that he was kind of forced to play off the ball uh, in that fit. But, you know, it, look, thinking back to kind of his high school career and, and him coming to Kentucky, you know, he was a point guard in high school. And just due to the incredible amount of talent on that Kentucky roster, he kind of had to evolve as an off-ball player. And I think that, honestly, was probably good for him long-term because if you're not going to be a high-volume initiator in the NBA, well, you better be able to space the floor and you better be serviceable on the defensive end. And those are qualities that he has in spades. I'll just say this about quickly is that I, I, I think you, you hammered home a lot of great points, Lee. Probably the, the biggest takeaway for me is we have these guys in the draft every year where if we probably would have taken one more step or two more steps during the research process, we'd probably come to a completely different conclusion. It's kind of like when, when, when you're back in high school and you were working on a math problem and you turn in what you think is the right answer, but then your teacher goes back and looks at it and says, well, if you probably would have taken one more extra step here and done this, ultimately you would have gotten to what is the actual correct answer. And for, for a lot of ways, that's true about quickly. Like if you caught him when you were evaluating and watching film, if you caught him in some games where that's pretty much all he did was just space the floor for the other guards around him. Cause quite frankly, Kentucky is a school that for whatever reason, lacks jump shooting year to year and they lack true floor spacers. So you're making other guys fall into that role when in reality they can do other things. But yeah, it's a, if you catch them on a wrong series of games and you aren't able to look at the actual film sample size for some of the, the on ball creation aspects that you mentioned that when he did showcase those things in Kentucky, he did them really well. If you don't go back and look at, some of the things that these guys did in high school and take that into account a lot more seriously, it can come back to bite you in the NBA evaluation because a lot of times those NBA coaches and, and skill trainers, they review the high school stuff as well. And they, they take into account that college has become more of a game about fit, not necessarily a showcase of all of your abilities because these college coaches also want to win games, right? They have jobs to uphold. They have salaries to, to, to keep bringing in for the family. Like they got their own jobs to do. And part of it is figuring out how to use the talent they have on that roster just to go out there and, and win games to, to their benefit as well as the team's benefit. Um, and, and, and that, that has its positives and negatives. Like the positive that can come out of that is that these players are learning how to appreciate a certain role because at some points in their NBA careers, they are going to be asked to, to not do everything, just do a few things, but do them really well. So while that benefited quickly in that he was a very lethal three-point shooter, whether it was catch and shoot, whether it was on the move, kind of like how you illustrated Lee, he did that incredibly well, but he didn't always get to showcase every single game what he could do on the ball. And the fact that he's been electric in the pick and roll game, that, that flutter game, like, like you and I both talked about, I mean, he, yeah, he's showcasing stuff that if I probably would have taken a, a few more steps in the research process, maybe I would have come to a better conclusion about him too. It's not that I didn't like him. 
or that I wouldn't have drafted in myself. Cause I think I even said on this podcast when I did that one of, one of the few that I did about like second round, like value targets, like guys that you should be looking at. If you have a pick like 31 and on, like, I, I think I even said that, like I would take quickly in a draft. Like I was high enough on him to at least want to draft him, get him into my locker room and see what he could do. But I should have absolutely been even higher on him and, and evaluated him with some of the other point guards in the class, not even just guards. Um, Cole, what, what are some of the things that you've seen uh, for, from quickly so far? Maybe speak to how you would have evaluated him coming into the draft. Yeah, so <clears throat> I wasn't paying attention to Kentucky that deeply last year and, and kind of really the draft beyond the lottery um, was where I kind of lost focus. Uh, just had a lot going on. But I think I remember you tweeting out early in the season, Nate, that like Quickly's performance so far will be a great litmus test or barometer for how we go about uh, ranking guards and just paying attention to guards in the future. And I totally agree with that. Um, you know, he's just another great example of how p- basketball has become more positionless and guys are shoved into different roles sometimes in college. Uh, but you really just have to pay attention and, and catch all the skills that they flash and, you know, figure out if they're legit in a, in a private setting, whether that be a workout for these professional teams that we, we don't get access to, um, or, you know, you're just confident enough that they do it at a high enough level when you do catch them on that night. So quickly is a great example of, of that. Um, if I had to say, if I'm impressed by anything, it's, it's that floater. Yeah. He's definitely got one of the best floaters very quickly in the NBA. Uh, it's just like a, it's like a falling star. It's just so soft and, and it goes in every time. Um, Lamella will pull one of those off every two, but, every now and then as well, but that's definitely quickly uh, bread and butter. Yeah, a hundred percent. So quickly has quickly taken a, <laughs> no pun intended, but has quickly taken the league by storm. One, one prospect who hasn't quite taken everyone by storm and in, in regards to where he was ultimately drafted is his teammate, Obi Toppin. Now, that can come into play for a variety of reasons in terms of a lottery prospect not meeting draft expectations early on. Obviously, he was in and out of the lineup at the start of the season, kind of through for, for multiple different reasons. But when, when Obi Toppin has played, it's not like he hasn't been effective. He's been in the 65th percentile according to Synergy and total offense, the 73rd percentile in total defense. It's just some of the raw numbers don't exactly bear out in his favor, particularly some of the shooting splits, 30.8% from three-point range, 70% from the free throw line. Um, 14.3% on corner threes isn't a number that you want to see from him, but at the same time, he excels in so many of these different metrics, and certainly we saw this at Dayton, but he excels in so many of these other metrics inside the arc, whether it's cutting to the basket, whether it's finishing a lob, whether it's even on a post-up. He, he proved that Dayton that he could finish a hook, a hook over either shoulder, like he was comfortable working offense out of the post or even passing out of the post at times. And that's kind of where you would think that a coach would want to build his game. You would want to build his game from the inside and out. But there are so many possessions that I see him on the Knicks where he's just left standing in the corner not really getting one of those easy cut or easy post-up touches first to establish an inside game. Just let him see the ball go through the basket, and he's just stuck being this outside shooter, and you wonder why the the numbers aren't bearing out. Well, that might be a big reason why. So, Lee, what are some of the things that that you've seen from Obi Toppin's sparse play for sure up to this point, but his play for for the Knicks nonetheless? And where where do you think he needs to improve the most, or or what can the coaching staff – 
in turn do better to to get him in better spots to see the ball go through the net. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the 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 rub on top and coming into the draft was well, he's uh, subpar in a lot of ways defensively, so the offense is going to have to be that much better to make up for that. And I think, you know, that's playing out to some degree. I think a lot of this is one of the first points you made. I mean, he's only played 22 games. He's been in and out of the lineup. Uh, It goes back to the conversation we had at the beginning about how much conclusions can you draw from a 30-game sample size on rookies. So I think that has to be kind of at the forefront of the conversation as, as, as uninteresting and as uninspired as it, as it can sound. Like, it's just true. We got to wait and see. Um, but but two, a couple things here. Like, one, Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson have been so good and so important for this Knicks team, which has a top-five defense in the NBA right now, by the way, um, that there's – just not a ton of opportunity for Obi Toppin. Those two uh, quote-unquote bigs have to be on the floor so often for them. You know, I I don't see how he fits in exactly. Now, I think, you know, one thing that, that is concerning is that, you know, Nerland's Noel at times is, is, is above Obi Toppin in the, in the rotation for the Knicks. That's probably not what you want from a top 10 pick. But again, the sparse play, uh, he's been banged up here or there, and he's just not making his jump shots, right? Not at a high enough clip, at least. So when you combine the limitations he has from a physical standpoint on defense and you kind of dovetail that with inefficient shooting from the perimeter, well, then all of a sudden he becomes a lot easier to deal with as an offensive player when he's not the focus Uh, and a high-usage, high-volume guy that he was at at Dayton. On this Knicks team, he really has to fit in where he can, and I think that's just a struggle for him right now, adapting to that kind of new reality uh, in the most competitive league on earth. For a team, by the way, that is in the playoff hunt and coached by one of the most grizzled uh, NBA veteran coaches in Tom Thibodeau that we have around. So, Nothing's going to be handed to Obi Toppin. Uh, Emmanuel quickly has been as good as a rookie could be, and he still hasn't started a game, much to the chagrin of Nick's Twitter. And, you know, so, so I think all those things kind of combined, it gives you the conclusion that it's been an uninspiring start, but it is not necessarily any type of nail in the coffin. I think we just have to wait and see how this plays out. If his jump shooting comes around, that changes the calculus of what he can be on offense because if teams have to worry about him as a pick and pop uh, or a catch and shoot jump shooter, well, then they're going to have to kind of gravitate towards him more from a defensive responsibility standpoint. That allows him to do some of the other things he's good at that you talked about as an off ball cutter, kind of moving into space and finishing. uh, And, and obviously, you know, as, as just an offensive scorer in general. So all that to say, like, the guy's got to make some shots, and then let's kind of evaluate what he is as an offensive force. I couldn't have said any of that better myself, and that's why you're on this pod right now, man. The, you, you, you make intelligent points 
and come to very reasonable conclusions so often, whether it's you're talking on Twitter or your own show, which hopefully we'll, we'll get you to advertise towards the end of this podcast. But I'm always hear, hearing you and, and watching you make some great points like that. But yeah, you, you certainly tied everything together really well. And, and your, your point about him playing alongside some of these other bigs, sometimes being forced into these jumbo lineups. Yeah, that doesn't take advantage of any of the skill sets that I laid out for, for him either to kind of get him more involved in, in, in more ways scoring inside the arc versus just pushing him out to the perimeter. Now, yeah, if his jump shot comes around, then he can slide into some of those bigger lineups a little more effectively. And in turn, sometimes having that much size or being able to have that much size on the court, depending on the lineup you're going up against, that gives you incredible advantages both shooting from the perimeter, given that you're shooting with size, as well as on the boards, right? Like Obi Toppin's not a lost cause, certainly rebounding the ball either. He gives them another active presence who's someone else who wants to crash the boards, even on the offensive end. So yeah, there, there's advantages and disadvantages, but I think you and I can can come to an agreement that the shot making from the perimeter definitely has to come around at least while he's a part of this particular Knicks squad. But He's a rookie. Yeah. We got to be patient with him regardless. Um, Cole, you have any other thoughts to, to chime in about Obi? Yeah, I mean, Julius is having a, an all-star level season and a big reason why the Knicks are where they are um, in, in addition to Thibodeau coaching the team. So I totally agree that nothing's going to be handed to him, which I think might actually be good for Toppin in the way that quickly had to do some different things in Kentucky, and that was good for him. Um, yep. I think the jump in decision-making – from what Dayton had Toppin doing to what the Knicks would like Toppin to be doing is just so much more uh, high level than what he was doing there. So it's good for him, I think, right now to be taking things slow and learning all that and seeing Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson execute you know, the type of things that he needs to do. And then as time rolls on, I think he'll be able to do those things too because he's, he's super athletic and I think he does have a good head on his shoulders and is super willing to learn and work. Absolutely, absolutely. Now... To a transitioning to a guy where you can be a little more patient with him, I think that at, at this point, certainly not to, to toot my own horn because I, I hope that in some ways I'm wrong about the evaluation with him because he's been a pretty exciting player for Detroit when he's been on. But Sadiq Bey has kind of been the player that I thought he was going to be coming out of college. Now, um, I, I'm going to go to Cole first on Bay in a second because him and I had some arguments to, leading up to that draft about what we thought about Sadiq Bay. Well, well, Cole said that he, for the most part, paid attention to the lottery. Bay is a Villanova guy. Cole and I both are in the Philadelphia area. So, of course, okay. we're going to pay more attention to him, right? So I, I kind of went with the notion that Bay was going to be for the most part, a three-point shooter in the NBA. And while Cole made a great argument that he unleashed a, a bunch of different mid-range touch-type shots at Villanova, and that was a big part of his game. It's something that, given his size and physique, he may be able to translate and, and, and put to use in the NBA. Usually with those kind of players, though, if you're showing any kind of stroke from the three-point line, generally that that's what you become. Those those six seven six eight wings who can shoot potentially lights out from three and may make somewhat of a potential impact on defense like that three and D archetypes, all the rage in today's game. And right now, if Cole and I would have made a bet, I'm winning that bet. So <laughs> he's taking seven shots from the field per game to this point. Uh, five of those five out of the seven are threes. So he's only taking two shots inside the arc. And when he does take shots inside the arc, the numbers haven't exactly bore out great results, right? 31.6% uh, from three to 10 feet. 
22% from 10 to 16 feet. So some of those mid-range shots like, like Cole was talking about could be effective for him, but only just under 55% at the rim. So some of these other prospects that we've already talked about, you can go through their, their numbers scoring right around the basket. They'd be like 66, 67% or above finishing by the arc. So that's a significant dec- decrease when you're talking about Bay's number. Um, yeah, it, it's when, when he's able to, to spot up in a corner and just bomb away from three when he has an open look. Yeah, he's been a really effective weapon for Detroit. That was certainly the, the bulk of his most meaningful performance this season against Boston when he went for 30 points. A lot of that offense came from shots that were generated for him on three-point attempts, which just a, a, another interesting number to take note of. He's been assisted on 90% of his three-point attempts. So he's not really a creator. It's If he has an open shot, he can hit it. The, the other thing about his game that I haven't exactly appreciated, and I hope that, that he can remedy some of this, I, I, I get that some of these synergy stats when we're talking about total offense versus total defense, those numbers also reflect the teammates and the overall schemes that, that are being played out around him. But he's in the ninth percentile overall in total defense. So that three and D archetype, he's lived up to the three, probably exceeded everyone's expectations in the three-point department. The D, on the other hand, hasn't exactly been there. But, Cole, where where are you at right now with, with Sadiq Bey? What surprised you? What's disappointed you? And are you ready to say that I'm going to win our bet that we had? <laughs> Do you remember the exact terms of the bet? Because I, I think you have the record uh, a little bit wrong here. Definitely agree <laughs> that definitely agree that he was going to shoot jump shots. I mean, come on. He was a three-point shooter in college. Um, so that was a given. I just think over time that he will be definitely shooting more mid-range jump shots. And I think the crux of the discussion at the time was, was the mid-range jumper dead for everybody? And I said it wasn't dead for everybody. Yeah, I, I don't think the terms stars. of the bet were that he wouldn't be like more of a split score in terms of how he gets his shots. I think I made the argument that he would be an exclusive three-point shooter for the most part you didn't go drastically to the two-point end but you yeah you made the firm case that his splits would be a little more clear because of some of the mid-range game he showed in college right and so he's a rookie and he's been asked to just do what he can so far and you know he's most effective uh three-point shooting and they've, they've needed that because Svi has kind of collapsed from his you know building off of last year uh he's i think he's passed him in the depth chart in ways um but, you know, they're both still young players and they're both figuring a lot out. The defense is definitely concerning, but I, I think Bay is still going to form into that well-rounded, you know, jump-shooting offensive player. Um, he definitely needs to take a step forward defensively, otherwise he's just going to be an offensive specialist off the bench. I think at the time I even just said to you, he's just a bigger Aaron Aflalo, who was a jump-shooting guy, if I remember correctly. Um, and I still kind of think that might be true for Bay. Although every now and then he'll break off a pretty strong take to the rim, so there might be something more there. Um, but no, that's kind of where I'm at with Bay. I mean, like, yeah, the, the three-point shooting is translated. I think he's, you know, effective cog and, and a member of offense thanks to having gone to Villanova and getting to learn under that system. So he's a solid player, but the defense does need to come around. Yeah, and, and for, for the record, I'm not completely breaking out of character here. I'm, for, for the most part, I'm just joking about whether we're, we're being oh, right know. or wrong in these evaluations because <laughs> that's, that's clearly not what we advertise in this platform. That's not what we want to be known for, but... Um, there, it's not debate. like everything's net. What would you say? I said, I was just joking. I said, embrace debate, <laughs> embrace debate. <laughs> that's exactly. right. That that's right. 
Um, but yeah, it's not like it's been all negative for Sadiq. I mean, for, for the most part, he's been one of their two better three-point shooters. I mean, at times, if him or Wayne Ellington aren't out there, yeah, I, I agree, Cole, that that Pistons offense can collapse because there really isn't enough reliable shooting to go along with those two guys now. Granted, Jeremy Grant's made huge strides, especially as a jump shooter overall. But even him, a lot of what he wants to do is take somebody off the dribble and then go to a move inside the arc. That's what he's been comfortable doing for the majority of his career. Now he's just doing it more with the ball in his hands versus being like this off-ball cutter or this off-ball mover. So um, in terms of true lethal lights-out jump shooters, Bays had to be one of their two most reliable weapons. So, Lee, what 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 have you seen from from Bay that's intrigued you? And I guess I'll ask you the question because Draft Twitter was incredibly high on him in, in, dur- during the 2020 process. Where were you at on, on Sadiq Bay coming into the draft? Yeah, so you you laid out a really nice argument for kind of the concerns that you had and how those concerns have um, shown up. And I think that's true. I mean, when you look at his uh, percentages finishing around the rim, those are concerning. The mid-range uh, effectiveness has not borne out. But I, I'm more on on Cole's side, at least from the perspective of what Sadiq Bey can eventually become. Uh, I thought he was a lottery talent. He was 10th on my board. Obviously, he ends up going 19th and was and was traded to Detroit. So, I was incredibly high on Sadiq Bay. I preferred Sadiq Bay uh, to to a number of wings, and obviously, you know, having him tenth on my board, you you can draw that conclusion. So here's what I'll say: um, first of all, historically, from the 19th pick, if you end up getting a six seven six eight wing that shoots 40 percent from three and can play 25 minutes a game for you, that's a win historically. So although he has a long way to go in many other facets of the game. If all he is is a is a uh, highly above average three point shooter at his position, like that's enough value to say, all right, you know, we we got a rotational player at the nineteenth pick. Historically, that's a win. The second thing I'll say is the Pistons came into this off season or came into this season thinking that. They were going to be pairing a kind of point guard backcourt duo of Killian Hayes and Derrick Rose, and neither one of those guys are there now. Derrick Rose has been traded. Killian Hayes is hurt and and I believe out for the season. One of y'all correct me on that if, it, if that's not the case, but he's he's at least out for a, a, an extended, extended period. period of time. Yep. There we go. So uh the look the, the Pistons are a mess, right? I mean, offensively, they're a they're a bottom six offense. Uh and there's just not a ton of on-the-ball playmaking juice to create shots for the limited shooters they have. So the fact that Bay has been able to pre- to, to give the three-point production that he has when the deck is stacked against him from a structural offensive uh, standpoint, I think that's impressive. You know, he was a 44% three-point shooter his sophomore year at, at Villanova, graduating up to the NBA, shooting – 40% from three overall, 44% from corner threes on the year. I think that's really positive moving forward. From a defensive standpoint, I guess the only counterpoint I can argue is, is kind of the overarching Pistons argument, which is nobody on this roster is playing any defense. <laughs> and, you know, he's collateral damage to a degree from that standpoint. 
I was optimistic on his ability because of what we talked about earlier with Lamelo. Like Sadiq Bay is just a big, thick, you know, long uh, wing, and so he can make up for some of his mistakes. I mean, Jay Wright gave him the toughest assignments when Villanova played Seton Hall. You know, he guarded Miles Powell when they played Marquette. He guarded Marcus Howard when they played Kansas. He guarded Devon Dotson and he did a pretty decent job at that at Villanova. So I still think there's some unearthed three and D potential with Sadiq Bay. Obviously the shooting has translated uh, immediately. The rest of his game is very much a work in progress. I think I agree with your outline of of why there are some red flags here. There are some red flags here, but when you contextualize it with kind of the jumbled mess that this Pistons roster is right now, I mean, DeLon Wright and like Saban Lee are their playmakers right now. So, um, you know, I, I think given, you know, what he's been able to produce so far, 30 games into his career, 13 starts, I'm still pretty optimistic. I don't uh, immediately regret where I have him. Um, although, you know, he's got some hills to climb. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with a lot of what you said, Lee. Given where he was drafted, absolutely. Not all of these guys are going to be stars. At some point towards like the end of the lottery, the mid first round, you have to go into it thinking that you're probably looking to draft a role player at this point, right? And right. the, the good news is, is that this past draft class was filled with guys who I would say are going to end up being good players in the NBA. Maybe not great, maybe not excellent, maybe not stars, but they're going to be good, solid rotation players that teams are going to be able to rely upon some, some years down the road. And Sadiq Bey absolutely falls into that category. I think on, on the 2020 board, I had him at 23. So like that 19 to 25 range, that, that's pretty much where I had him. And I agreed with where he was drafted because I didn't see much more upside to his game other than the fact that he was going to come in, he was going to be a reliable jump shooter, wasn't really going to be a negative on defense, could impact the game in different ways because of his size and that build that you outlined, Lee. So this is pretty much the outcome that that I saw for Sadiq Bey. Um, now what I will say is that, yeah, you, you and Cole both make great points. We can't give up on any potential upside that could still be there from, from some of the stuff we saw in college that would be ignorant of us or me, especially given the conversation we just had about guys like quickly who, yeah, they, they were forced into a role at times because of the personnel and, and the situation that they were in. Not necessarily that they can't do any of those things, but they're not given the opportunity to do all those things. Like, yeah, it's great that Detroit's taking advantage of base skill as 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 an off-ball shooter because they're generally playing him in lineups that have anywhere between like two to three playmakers or guys who can do something off the dribble at a time. But just because they aren't giving him more opportunities to to create off the dribble and kind of do some things from a playmaking perspective, that doesn't mean it's not there. So yeah, I agree. That would be ignorant of me to write any of that off. So Bay definitely has a place in this league. I like him a lot. He's going to be a good player. How much more he can climb in terms of his ultimate ceiling, I think that's absolutely up for debate. But at the very least, we know that the Pistons got a very solid shooter and something that, quite frankly, I think they they should be thanking God that they got 
Sadiq Bay in the draft, given where some of their other shooting woes and concerns are coming in. So um, with, with that being said, we, we just talked about a Villanova guy. Let's wrap up this rookies conversation this week with somebody who's playing basketball in Philly right now. And that would be Tyrese Maxey playing for colonized, sometimes beloved 76ers <laughs> for, for, for better or worse, but in, in and out of love. Yeah. In and out of love is the best way to say that Cole, hundred percent. So <laughs> I had Maxey quite literally at where did I have Tyrese Maxey? I had him at 16. So getting him, where the Sixers got him in my mind was a steal going into it. Now I didn't have him as like this top 10 ranked prospect, which if you're doing a redraft to this point of the season, I think he has at the very least a lottery argument, but probably has a pretty decent top 10 argument, not based necessarily on the numbers, but on some of the eye test stuff that we've seen from him. Absolutely. Um, a competitive guy. We, we already knew that going in to the draft process that he was this tireless worker this guy who's going to bring his lunch pail, isn't afraid to get down and do the dirty work, wants to play defense, is hungry, looks for shot opportunities, and ultimately just wants to see the team succeed in, in, in the best way possible. And he plays with that same kind of effort when he's get, been given opportunities for the Sixers, whether it's embracing this role that he seems to have of only playing so many minutes per game off the bench or sometimes not getting consistent minutes or when quite literally the whole team or almost the whole team is out due to contact tracing or, or COVID protocols when he's one of like the six guys or seven guys playing and he's forced into this shot making playmaking role that he can do it in spades, right? Like I know that there really wasn't anybody else to create when he had to play in that game against the Denver Nuggets. But at the same time, the guy did technically produce playing a heavy amount of minutes, something that he probably hadn't done since his Kentucky days. When you talk about the the layover because of everything going on with COVID and college basketball. And then ultimately when the season was able to take place, like he didn't play in, in a true professional game other than like workout stuff for quite some time. So that was an adjustment and a shock for him, but at the same time, he delivered. Now, like I said, the numbers really aren't going to jump off the page and surprise you that 40, almost 45% shooting from the field, that 28% from three. He is shooting 88% from the line, so while the three-point game has probably been the slowest part of his offensive arsenal to come around to this point, given the free-throw stroke and, and given some of the shots we saw him make in college and even going back to high school, like at some point the three point game is going to come around and that makes him a well-rounded guard as somebody who can create for himself as well as create for others. And he's shown that when he is given the keys to run the offense from the point guard spot for the Sixers, I mean, he's been very good as a pick and roll ball handler. He's been very good handling sets and transition while his ISO and his spot up game, like I was talking about, it's a little bit of a work in process, at least from a jump shooting perspective, he's had his bright spot as well. Um, and he's been another guy that when he gets the, those looks at the basket on some of those like runners or those short jumpers, I mean, he's been in the 90th percentile on short jump shots. So he's another really crafty scorer and, and, and finds different ways to put the ball in the basket other than just spotting up for a three-point look. So he's certainly intrigued me. And, and I don't think the Sixers expected to have quite this level of player this soon on their hands. But Cole, you're the other Philly guy here. What's impressed you about Maxi, and and what can – uh, Philadelphia 76ers fans expect to see from him moving forward. I'm pretty impressed that he has been able to contribute. You know, when, like you said, when half the team was gone, he he made that game interesting, man. Like he really stepped up to the plate and dropped a serious game on everybody and put everybody on notice that yeah, I might have been a 21st overall pick, but I'm capable of all of this. 
And, and that's what's been really impressive to me that he's still a puppy, but man, he's got the physical tools, the smarts and the work ethic to flash some really high level stuff in games right now. And he's just going to keep getting better at it. You know, he's as soon as the offseason comes for him, he's going to be working harder than anybody. And I think we're going to see an even better Tyrese. Well, we're obviously going to see an even better Tyrese Maxey next year, but I think it'll surprise people how quickly he jumps uh, in terms of effectiveness in the league just because of how hard he works. And, and he's smart. He's smart. And he's already shown how effective he can be in, in ways. So, yeah, the arrow's pointing up big time for Tyrese Maxey, and I'd be interested to hear where, where Lee had him ranked in his draft process. Yeah. Um, so Tyrese Maxey uh, was 31st on my board. So, you know, first pick in the second round type evaluation, which obviously was a little bit lower than than most of the consensus and significantly lower than, than some uh, NBA draft Twitter opinion makers, you know, mm-hmm. some guys had had him with lottery grades. And, you know, I've said this multiple times kind of leading up to the draft process on different appearances and even on my own podcast. And, and the, the, the calculus was essentially like, if Tyrese Maxey proves me wrong in a big way, it's going to be because he is just a alpha, like dogged competitor type player. He wills himself and, uh, likely from what I can tell, at least with his on court persona is likely one of the biggest behind the scenes workers too. Like you just kind of see that correlation with guys that play with so much passion and fervor that they, they end up being uh, players that are self-made improvers too. So I kind of gave myself an out there and a disclaimer that Hmm. if from a technical basketball standpoint, it didn't play out the way I thought it would, it would be because of the type of player and the type of kid that he seemed to be. So I think you've seen some of that play out. He's obviously contributed on uh, I'm sure to y'all's delight, what is one of the best teams in the NBA right now. And that's impressive for a rookie. I wonder to the other side of the point, I wonder how sustainable kind of his shooting efficiencies are. I mean, he's been pretty good at the rim, which that's important. If that, if that continues, I think there's a more conceivable path to him as an effective offensive player. He's been just completely lights out in the mid range. And, you know, that begs the question, uh, is it sustainable? Um, you know, he's shooting, uh, I'm, and I'm pulling a lot of this stuff off cleaning the glass, so it's a little bit different than some of the other sites because it eliminates uh, some garbage time shooting and, and heaves and things like that. But 44% on all mid-range field goals, uh, That I mean, that's, you know, that's he's 65th percentile for his position, which is really impressive, particularly for a rookie point guard. Mm-hmm. The three-point shooting has been just disastrous, and a lot of people – you know, made the claim that, well, he was a better three-point shooter in high school. You know, I just didn't see it from a mechanical standpoint at Kentucky. I thought he shot a really flat ball, um, which doesn't always lend to uh, high growth improvement. That being said, I, you know, I could argue my own point in saying that he has been a really effective free throw shooter. So that's good, too. You dovetail the the rim finishing with the free throw shooting, and all of a sudden there's something a little bit more interesting there. I guess my concern still lies in the the structure of this roster, which is obviously built around its two superstars who both need spacing, particularly obviously Simmons at the point guard position. And if Maxi can't exist as an off ball spacer, 
you know, what's his value? Maybe his value is as what he is right now, a 15 to 20 minute uh, second unit offensive engine that can carry your offense for three to five minutes at a time when your superstars are on the bench. That's not a bad outcome for him. Um, so, so I guess to wrap it up, you know, some of my concerns have shown through, but some of the reasons why I thought I might be wrong about him have also shown through. So uh, it's very, very possible that I'm going to have to end up regretting uh, my evaluation on Tyrese Maxey, at least from a board position standpoint. He certainly has outplayed where I had, where I had him uh, at least thus far. I just wonder about his mid-range sustainability. I wonder about his long-term fit on this roster. And I wonder if the shooting ever truly comes online, particularly from three-point line. Yeah, the three-point shot is absolutely, without a doubt, the biggest concern. I mean, we, we, we talk about free-throw shooting being the foundation of eventually expanding your range. And then you figure once you go from the free-throw line, you have your mechanics down and sound and everything's consistent with your with your free throw mechanics. Then at that point, when you're looking to expand your range, well, from three, where's the shortest part on the court? It's from the corners. And the fact that he's a big old donut on shooting corner threes this year, that that certainly doesn't play into that argument that at least at this point, he's can be considered a reliable floor spacer. So yeah, to that point, Lee, you are correct. You would kind of have to be in this point guard creator role doing things off the dribble, uh, creating more out of pick and roll, finding himself off of those pick and rolls, getting into these mid-range shots. And and he's been effective at doing that, but I agree at at to what point, like eventually that's probably going to slow down at least a little bit. Teams are going to catch on to that and and figure out different ways how to play the pick and roll when he's running those actions. So yeah, there's certainly things for him to, to work on in his game, but I've always envisioned him and kind of why people were either high on him because they thought that he could excel in more of a playmaking heavy role versus just being a pure scorer. Or if people didn't think that he could do some of those things that he's shown examples of that he would be this more like second round type prospect who wouldn't be worth some of the hype he was getting. And I won't even say you're unreasonable for where you had him Lee because bigger names like, like a John Hollinger, for example, like he had, Tyrese Maxey is a second round grade. So John right. Holland has worked in front offices. He's been doing this for, for certainly longer than I've been doing it. So it's, it's not like there haven't been respected people in the field and the industry kind of sharing a similar opinion on what they thought could, could bear out for Maxey. I think one, one thing I'll, I'll end with and I'll let either of you guys comment on it. The rumors have started to circulate that Kyle Lowry wants to come back to Philadelphia and that mm-hmm. the 76ers are, are, going to hopefully try and make an offer and, and maybe pluck them out from that Toronto Raptors situation if things don't get better. And in my opinion, I couldn't think of a better mentor for, for Tyrese Maxey and the kind of player that I envisioned him being out of college or at the very least what I would want him to develop into. Uh, totally. It's funny. I mean, obviously hearing the trade rumors swirl myself being in near the city, I was thinking, yeah, the same thing as you just said, Nate. Like, if if it all actualizes for Tyrese, you know, it's something like Kyle Lowry. He can space the floor. He can do creating. He's a bull on defense, and he just embodies that, you know, overall arching winning and positive attitude that kind of uplifts the team. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think if, uh, you know, Philadelphia obviously does have championship aspirations this year, get, <laughs> acquiring Kyle, Kyle Lowry would probably be one of the most effective ways to try and really uh, acquire, you know, that elusive championship that, that they've been chasing with this young core for the last couple of years. I guess, I guess my question to y'all would be, because I haven't really seen the details yet, like, what would be the asking price? And would Toronto not probably be very uh, deliberate about wanting Maxi in return? Or, or is it, are they saying, you know, a different type of package, maybe other type of draft equities and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, there's not enough details out there. The, the, the usual asking price for somebody like Kyle Lowry is exciting young players and, and, and draft equity, right? right? So right. you're, you're, you're going to think that the conversation would probably start somewhere around the realm of, okay, well, you're not going to trade Ben. You're not going to trade Embiid. You know, Harris, we're, we don't really want to take on that contract. So where do you go next? You go to Matisse? You go to Maxi, I can actually then- step in. I've been seeing a lot of rumors, and a projected trade that I have been seeing is Danny Green, Tyrese Maxey, Shake Milton, and a first-round pick. Okay, so that's that's a pretty hefty asking price, but at the same time, for a guy like Kyle Lowry, for the one year to come in and potentially help you get a championship, that might be that might be what it costs. So, in in that scenario, I wouldn't get to see my dream play out of. <laughs> Lowry being a mentor for for Maxi, but if they can pull that off without throwing Maxi into the deal, you you really have to seriously consider that. Not that I would want the Sixers to part ways with Shake Milton either. I I love that guy and Cole. I know you love Shake Milton, so I I don't know how you would feel about that proposed trade. But yeah, that you you, you bring up a good point, Lee. If they're gonna go after somebody like Lowry, they got to be willing to part ways with younger assets. For sure. I mean, we we saw you know we saw what Drew Holiday was able to fetch, right? So. Uh, for teams that are that are desperate to add an integral part to a roster that's chasing a championship, um, you're right. You know the 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 asking that's that's basically where these things start. So, but but to your overall point, I completely agree in a vacuum that Lowry would be literally the perfect guy for Maxi. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's certainly a trade to potentially monitor for NBA fans out there and keep an eye on because we know what Maury loves to do. We know that Maury loves to swing for the fences and trade for stars and accumulate higher value assets like Lowry, for example. And he's not afraid to to part ways with draft equity or things of that nature to do it. And we know for a fact that we also have an ownership group that doesn't mind spending the money to do it as well, regardless of what that means, whether it's this year or in the years to come, the Sixers already have one of the biggest payrolls. So screw it, right? Why, why not add to it even more and potentially get a championship out of the run? So Lee, you are awesome to have on, man. We will 100% do this soon in the near future. But for, for our listeners out there, where can they find you on social media? Where can they read and listen to your work? Yeah, well, th- thanks for having me, guys. It's been an awesome conversation. Uh, you guys put out great content, so so keep it up. Folks can find me at Witch Carolina on Twitter. They can find our podcast on basically any digital streaming platform that you listen to your podcast. It's the same thing. Just search Witch Carolina and you'll find us. We do a lot of, of course, we do a ton of Charlotte Hornet stuff, NBA draft, and then and then just general NBA banter as well. Uh, I, I do write as well, um, mostly for hoopsprospects.com. 
I haven't written any articles recently, but that'll kind of ramp up once the once the draft season starts to ramp up again. I'll do, uh, you know, kind of uh, rising and falling stock articles, player evaluations, scouting reports, you know, international uh, articles, things of that nature. So that's where folks can find me. I appreciate y'all letting me, uh, you know, uh, plug plug the the social media and the podcast and, and giving me uh, another avenue to spout some of my opinions. So this has been this has been awesome. We'll come back anytime you guys would like to have me. One hundred percent, absolutely. Go go listen to Lee's podcast. Go read his work. Trust me, more draft pro more draft profiles. Excuse me, are going to come from me. Um, on the website, draftdeeper.com. Everybody out there, if you want to read the the Jalen Johnson and the Jared Butler profiles that are already up there, like I mentioned in an earlier part of the podcast, I've been transitioning between different roles. So my schedule has been a little busy, but absolutely once we don't have to be watching all of these games live every single night, some of these interesting uh, college matchups, then yeah, the, the process for profiles is going to ramp up and we hope to have a full catalog of red work out there in the hopefully not too distant future. So thank you again, everyone for showing all of your support weekly. Again, don't be afraid to chop it up, chop it up with us on Twitter at draft deeper, like our Facebook page, subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple podcasts, Spotify. If you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel and I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the week. Again, thank you all for the support. 